Volume 1, Chapter 7, Part 1 of A Popular History of England From the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Wayne Cook. A Popular History of England. From the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by Francois-Pierre Guamet-Guizot Chapter 7, Part 1 Henry II, 1154 to 1189 When King Henry II ascended the throne in 1154, he was the most powerful monarch that ever reigned in England, and one of the most powerful in Christendom. To his hereditary possessions, Anjou, Normandy, and Maine, and his beautiful kingdom of England, he had added, by his marriage with Eleanor of Aquitaine, Pigeon, and Aquitaine, which comprised Saint-Orge, Auvergne, Perigord, Lumezan, Angamois, and Guienne. He was ambitious and greedy of power. His father, who knew him well, had provided by his will that Anjouan should return to his second son, Geoffrey, if the eldest should become king of England, and in order to secure this arrangement, he had forbidden his own interment before Henry should have sworn to conform to it. The prince hesitated long, then took the oath, and Count Geoffrey Plantagenet was consigned to the tomb. But Henry had become king, and his brother had claimed the execution of his promise. The monarch contrived to be relieved of his oath by Nicholas Breakspear, who had been raised to the pontifical dignity under the name of Adrian the Fourth, the only Englishman who has ever become pope. Henry Plantagenet retained Anjou, the cradle of that family, which he was destined to render so powerful. When the new king landed in England, six weeks after the death of Stephen, he found his kingdom a prey to horrible anarchy. In the intervals of their power, Maud and Stephen had both endeavored to attach to themselves the great nobles by important grants of lands and castles. Hence the royal domains were reduced to insignificance and were surrounded on all sides by menacing fortresses guarded by resolute soldiers who recognized no authority but that of their chiefs. Many of these fortresses were in the hands of Flemish and Brabantine mercenaries, whom each party in turn had summoned to their assistance. It was by dealing with these men that Henry began the reform which he reckoned upon introducing into the condition of territorial property. On a given day, to the great joy of Normans and Saxons, he ordered all foreigners to leave the kingdom. We saw them, says a chronicler, we saw all those Barbantines and Flemings recross the sea to return to their plough-tails, and from being lords become serfs again. The expulsion of the foreign mercenaries had been popular, but this was not the principal object of the king, who desired to reconstitute the royal domain, and with that object convoked a grand council, which admitted though not without difficulty, that Henry was under the necessity of resuming the grants made by Stephen and Maud. The king was not more sparing of the partisans of his mother 
than of her enemies. From the moment that right was on his side, he never stopped in his efforts. From castle to castle, from domain to domain, he triumphed over the malcontents, either by the sword or by negotiation. When he became master of one fortress, he instantly had it raised to the ground. In this way, eleven hundred castles disappeared from the face of England. They had been mere haunts of robbers who oppressed the country round about. The peasants and the townspeople applauded the work of destruction. King Henry had already triumphed over his vassals and defeated his brother Geoffrey, who had refused to acquiesce in his spoliation. He had compelled him to take refuge in Nantes, the population of which town had offered him the government. In 1157 he came to the determination to bring to an end the struggle with the Welsh, who were still fighting proudly for their independence. But Henry did not know well that country of mountains and defiles. He became entangled in the environs of the forest of Coleshill, and the Welsh sallying forth in a mass from the obscure lurking places where they had been lying in ambush, fell upon the English army. The massacre was great. The Earl of Essex, hereditary standard-bearer of the crown, let fall the royal banner and took flight. The rumor spread abroad at once that the king was killed, but he soon rallied his troops and effected his retreat to a more open country, where he pitched his camp and thence inflicted so much annoyance on the Welsh that without venturing a second time upon a fixed battle, they consented to restore to Henry the territory which they had won back from Stephen, and to swear fidelity and homage to him for the lands which they retained. The struggles of King Henry with the Welsh were not ended. Repeated insurrections were destined to recall him into the mountains, but he succeeded, nevertheless, in securing and extending his dominion over that indomitable population, proud of the antiquity of their race, and convinced that all England belonged to them by right of birth. Geoffrey had lately died at Nantes, 1158, and his brother claimed that city as belonging to him by inheritance. In vain the citizens protested. In vain Conan, Duke of Brittany, and Earl of Richmond in England maintained the rights of his vassals. King Henry confiscated the lands of the Earl of Richmond and crossed the sea with so powerful an army that the inhabitants of Nantes were terrified and opened their gates to him. Henry immediately took possession of all the territory between the Loire and the Vienne and proposed to the duke to terminate their differences by affiancing his daughter Constance to Geoffrey, the third of the English princes. In order to obtain the consent of the king of France, Louis the Seventh, to this increase of his power upon French soil, Henry had sought the hand of Margaret of France on behalf of Henry, his eldest son. This gleam of a good understanding between the great powers of the earth was very soon disturbed by new ambitious dreams of Henry Plantagenet. Eleanor of Aquitaine had, or believed herself, to have, through her grandmother, claims to the countship of Toulouse. Her first husband, Louis the Seventh, had relinquished those rights by treaty after an attempt to seize them by force of arms, but by virtue of the divorce, 
Eleanor had vested her pretensions in her second husband, Henry, King of England, who claimed the session pure and simple of the countship by Raymond of St. Giles, Count of Toulouse. The latter invoked the aid of his suzerain lord, the King of France. In the prospect of this distant struggle, Henry commuted the military service which his vassals were bound to render into a tax, and, by means of this money, he secured the services of an army of Barbatines. With these marched Malcolm, King of Scotland, and the King of Aragon, who, like the King of France and the Duke of Brittany, had lately affianced his daughter to one of the sons of Henry, and the most warlike of the English barons. But Louis the Seventh had already entered Toulouse when Henry advanced against that city. Louis had but few troops with him, and the King of England might easily have attempted an assault. Scruples, based upon his position of vassal of his lord, however, restrained him. When the French army had joined Louis the Seventh, a few feats of arms of little importance soon brought the war to an end, but it had left indelible traces. The inhabitants of the south of France had acquired the habit of calling to their aid sometimes the King of France, sometimes the King of England, and their independence was destined to succumb under these powerful protectors. It was so well known upon the banks of the Garonne that the southern provinces were at peace when their dangerous allies were quarreling elsewhere, that people openly asked in the form of a prayer, When will the truce between the English and the Tournois come to an end? In the midst of these wars and negotiations, these invasions and their treaties, King Henry relied on all sides upon the advice and support of Thomas Becket, or a Becket, Chancellor of England, the son of Gilbert a Becket, a merchant of the city of London of Norman origin. A romantic story attaches to the birth of Thomas Becket. It is related that the busy passers-by in the streets of London had, to their great surprise, observed one day a woman wearing oriental costume who was wandering about repeating the name of Gilbert. To questions put to her, she gave no answer, and she knew no other English words than Gilbert and London. The people around her had begun to murmur when she was recognized by a servant who had accompanied Gilbert Becket to the Crusades. Both had been made prisoners and had succeeded in escaping, but the daughter of the emir who had held them captive had conceived a passion for Gilbert. She had followed his traces to the shore and had found means of going to England and then to London without any guide to the whereabouts of him she loved than his name of Gilbert, at that time a very common one. Becket consulted his confessor. The Saracen princess was baptized under the name of Matilda, and Gilbert married her. Her husband made a great fortune, and his son Thomas, a handsome and intelligent youth, had been brought up with great care, then sent to France and Italy to finish his education. He had been taken notice of from his childhood by Theobald, Archbishop of Canterbury, who took him into his house as soon as he had completed his studies and employed him in the most delicate diplomatic affairs, when at the ascension of King Henry II he himself filled the functions of Prime Minister. The King took a liking to the young Archdeacon 
and in 1156 appointed him chancellor, at the same time confiding to him the education of his eldest son. He also made him constable of the tower, with the custody of considerable domains. The ecclesiastical benefices, often vacant, which the chancellor was in no haste to fill up, caused to flow into the treasuries the rich revenues of the bishoprics and abbeys. Gilbert Becket was dead, and his son had inherited a great fortune. He was forty years of age, elegant in his person, magnificent in his attire, skilled in all bodily exercises, and, at the same time, learned, courageous, enterprising, and able. The king, who saw only through his eyes, kept him incessantly at his side, and could not endure his absence. Becket kept a splendid retinue, remarkable even at that period of magnificent extravagance. His house was filled with knights and daughters of great lords who designed to secure by this means the favor of the king, and to bring up their children in the manner of the court. His sumptuously furnished table was open to all comers, and when a diplomatic mission led the chancellor abroad, the retinue which accompanied him was so magnificent and so numerous that the spectators exclaimed, What must the king of England be when his servant travels with such pomp? It was in this way that Thomas Becket presented himself at the French court to negotiate on the Fair of Brittany and the alliance of Prince Henry with Margaret of France. With similar grand display, although of a different nature, he accompanied the king in his campaign through the Countship of Toulouse, of which he directed in person the greater part of the operations. He was at the head of seven hundred knights and men of arms, supported at his expense, when he attacked the towns of Cahors and the castles which surrounded it. His sagacity, his good humor, his caustic and fertile wit were to the king a continual source of amusement. He lived with his favorite in almost brotherly intimacy, and the administrative talents which the chancellor displayed in domestic affairs added to his popularity. I will make thee Archbishop of Canterbury, Henry often said. Becket smiled and shook his head. When the prior of Leicester, a rigid ecclesiastic, reproached him with the worldliness and outward show of his mode of living, reminding him that he was destined to become primate of England, the chancellor exclaimed, I know three poor priests more fitted than I for that dignity. If I ever attained it, I should either lose the king's favor or forget my duty towards God. The Archbishop Theobald was dead, 1161. For thirteen months the kings left the see vacant in order to appropriate its revenues, but he did not lose sight of the choice on which he had resolved. Becket was devoted to him. He had always displayed great respect for the royal prerogative, exacting so rigorously what was due to the crown, even from the clergy, that the Bishop of London, Gilbert Foliot, accused him of angrily plunging a dagger into the maternal bosom of his church. Henry believed himself sure of thus raising to the ecclesiastical supremacy a friend who would support him in the reforms which he was meditating. He sent for Thomas Becket at Toulouse, where he happened to be, 
and ordered him to set out immediately for England, where he would be elected Archbishop of Canterbury. Becket smiled as he pointed to the magnificent dress in which he was clothed. You choose fine dresses to figure at the head of your monks at Canterbury, he said. If you do as you say, sire, you will hate me very soon as much as you now love me, for you will meddle in the affairs of the church more than I can consent to, and people will not be wanting to embroil us. The king paid no heed to the views of the chancellor. The bishops and the chapter of Canterbury proclaimed Becket unanimously, with the exception of Gilbert Foliot, who had hoped to secure that promotion for himself. The new archbishop received the order of priesthood, for he was hitherto only a deacon, and he was consecrated by Henry of Winchester, brother of King Stephen. The pallium was brought from Rome, and Becket took possession of the archiepiscopal throne. In placing his hand upon the pastoral crozier, Becket had completely changed his way of living. From the most ostentatious lecture he suddenly passed to the austerest life. No more festivities, no more horses, no more sumptuous clothing. The rich revenues were expended in alms. The archbishop had resigned his position as chancellor, saying that he could not do justice to the affairs of the king as well as to those of the church. Henry was astonished at this transformation, but as yet it caused him no irritation. When the court returned to England, the archbishop conducted his royal pupil to his father, and the king exhibited towards him the affection and the confidence to which he had been accustomed. Meanwhile, the storm was approaching. Becket had resolved to restore to the see of Canterbury its primitive splendor, and to take back from the hands of the despoiler the property of which the chapter had been deprived by slow degrees. This measure, similar to that which Henry had long before applied to the crown property, seemed to the king objectionable when the matter in hand was the lands of the archbishopric. Becket even dared to demand a castle and he had excommunicated a vassal holding directly from the crown who had expelled a priest from his domains. It was with an ill will and after much difficulty that the archbishop withdrew his sentence in obedience to the king's orders. While these clouds were gathering in the sky, Henry was preparing a measure fatal to the good understanding between himself and his favorite. The priests and all those who depended directly or indirectly, on the church, had the right of being judged exclusively by ecclesiastical tribunals, and clerical justice was accused of great partiality. Its very laws forbade the shedding of blood. Thus, a servant of the church could not be condemned to death, even for murder, and this assurance often led to the most odious crimes, the repression of which was uncertain. The king had resolved to remedy this inconvenience by requiring that every priest degraded for his misdeeds should be given up to the civil tribunals, who should judge him in their turn. Becket maintained that it would be unjust to judge and punish twice the same culprit. The greater number of the bishops were of his opinion. The king shifted the question, Will you? 
he asked the assembly of prelates, swear to maintain the ancient customs of the realm? Save the honor of our order, replied all the bishops, with the exception of Hilary of Chichester. The king was furious. He convoked a great council at Clarendon, January 25, 1164, where he presented to the bishops a series of decrees and laws regulating the relations of the civil and ecclesiastical tribunals, which have since been known under the name of the Constitutions of Clarendon. He had striven to intimidate the bishops by stripping Becket of the castles and the titles which he had given him long before. Alternately, threatening and yielding, the archbishop had arrived at Clarendon. He had consented to sign the constitutions. The act was complete, and it only remained now to affix the seals, when Becket was seized with remorse. I will never affix my seal to this, he said, and without listening to the representations of his colleagues, or the counsels of the Grand Master of the Templars, or taking heed of the anger of the king, who had left the hall of council in a fit of rage, he remounted his horse and returned gloomily to Canterbury, lamenting over his sins as the cause of the enslavement of the church in England. I was taken from the court to become a bishop, vain and proud as I was, not from the school of the Savior, but from the palace of Caesar. I was a feeder of birds, and I was suddenly called upon to be the pastor of men. I was the patron of the mummers, and took delight in following the hounds. I have become the keeper of many souls. I neglected my own vineyard, and now I am entrusted with the vineyard of others. He fasted and prayed, refusing to ascend the steps of the altar. He found no rest until the Pope had sent him absolution for his failings. The pontiff had not ratified the constitutions of Clarendon. The king had not abandoned his project. His anger was directed against the archbishop, whom he rightly regarded as the only serious obstacle to his designs. He summoned him to appear before his council, which met at Southampton, October 1164, under pretext of a denial of justice on the part of his archiepiscopal court. Becket excused himself, but was condemned to forfeit his personal property, a sentence which was commuted into a fine of five hundred pounds sterling. The charges against him were not yet exhausted. A demand was made for the rents which he had received from lands given to him by the king. The archbishop promised payment. Each day brought some new claim. The king, who was furious against his old favorite, demanded at length a sum of 44,000 marks of silver on account of the ecclesiastical revenues which Becket had appropriated as chancellor during the vacancies of the seas. This was absolute ruin and war to the knife. The archbishop replied that it was not in his power to pay such a sum and that he had been declared free from all such claims when he had resigned his place as chancellor in order to become primate of England. At the same time, he requested a conference with the bishops, but all had abandoned him. Henry of Winchester alone proposed to pay the sums demanded of the archbishop. The king would not listen to him. 
what he desires is your resignation, said the bishops of London and Winchester to Becket. The life of this man is in danger, exclaimed the Bishop of Lincoln. He will lose his bishopric or his life, and I would like to know of what use his bishopric will be when he is dead. End of chapter 7, part 1.